Hello and welcome to The Light of the Crossroads. My name is Stephen Walsh. In this episode we'll be talking to Fez Inkwright all about her creative life and her work for Liminal Eleven. Currently you can pick up a copy of her first book for Liminal Eleven, Folk Magic and Healing, from all good bookshops, all the usual online outlets and liminal11.com where our web store will be able to take and dispatch orders for you. Just a reminder as well that Fez's self-produced work can be bought at crowandcrown.store. So crow as in the bird, crown as in the headwear, and store as in the shop. Let's talk to Fez now. Hello Fez, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's nice to join you. I think it's obvious to people who have seen your work that you've got a a love of of nature and uh, the natural world that's really at the heart of it. Um, Do you want to just tell us, you know, what sort of first kindled that interest and saw it develop as something that became so integral to what you do? Of course. Well, I've always kind of felt connected to the countryside. Uh, I was lucky to grow up in a very beautiful part of the country um, in Hampshire, which is down on the south coast. And it's a lovely area. It's got a lot of forests, woodland, um, beaches. It's just a kind of a very, a very wild area. My mum was very encouraging when I was very young to get me going out on walks. Uh, she's a gardener by trade as well. So she always had a, a very close connection with plants. And she used to take me out even when I was very, very small and tell me which plants we were seeing, how they grew. Um, we'd go out into the woods and, you know, I remember finding skulls and eggs and, and all those kind of things. And she was very encouraging when it came to learning about those things. Um, when I got a little bit older as well, I started working for a wildlife rescue centre in the area. And we used to we used to go out there during the day and volunteer actually at the centre, helping with the animals that they brought in. And we also fostered a lot of them. Uh, so we had hutches and um, and pens that we could bring them back to um, to look after them over the winter. Uh, we used to take a lot of hedgehogs, for example, that were too small to survive through the winter on their own. So we always it always felt like we had animals or, or bits of the countryside coming through the house anyway, um, which just always felt like it was a, a nice kind of connection to the countryside. But Hampshire itself is a, a beautiful area. It's got a lot of history and it's got a lot of its own folklore as well. Uh, there's a, a very famous one in a village near where I grew up where it was said that there was a cockatrice that lived in one of the abbeys. And I think the story goes that this uh, that the egg was brought as a, a gift to the abbey by visiting dignitaries and when it hatched, the cockatrice took up a home in the uh, in the cellar where they used to keep their beer. And it developed a taste for the people who lived in the abbey. So they eventually couldn't go down to uh, to draw the beer from the from the kegs. And eventually they went teetotal. And as far as I know, the people who work in the abbey now still won't drink on the grounds as it's uh, like a little kind of nod back to the history of that abbey. But it's, it's quite a famous story in the area. And uh, and growing up, I just loved that. I loved that there were so many little stories about all these these tiny little villages that dotted across the uh, across the county that just kind of really sparked my imagination. Fantastic. So you've got sort of folklore and nature all around you entwined in your everyday life. Yeah, basically. And it was something as well that it always felt like it was popping up in the books that I was reading as a child as well. Um, I was into a lot of fantasy. And in particular, I went through a period where I was really into books by Brian Jacks, uh, who wrote a lot of, he wrote the series called the Red Wall series, which was based in a very, 
uh, Hampshire-like woodland. It was based around uh, woodland animals and the stories that they that they lived through. And he always had these wonderful descriptions of the food that they were eating and the woodlands that they were in. But he kind of introduced this idea of um, wandering healers who were using plants as, as medicine as well. And I remember being fascinated with that as a child. And, and when I realized that that wasn't just a like a fantasy twist that he'd added to it, that it was actually a real thing. It just really kind of, yeah, really triggered that interest in it. Yeah, I love the uh, Brian Jacks books, the Red Wall series myself. And I grew up in uh, South London. So <laughs> we had parks, but it wasn't quite the same. So I can imagine the effect <laughs> it would have on you to sort of be reading these things and almost have it as a, as a backdrop to your life as well. Yeah, exactly. They were they were fantastic books. I really liked that they were they were aimed at children, but he never really pulled his punches with the language that he used or the things that he was discussing. As a child, I thought it was really nice to actually be written to as an adult, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I was sort of 13, 14 when I read them. And I, I can't, obviously, you know that they're sort of skewed younger than that, but um, it didn't feel that they were sort of insubstantial or, you know, like they weren't worth reading. They were still fantastic reads. Mm, I think that's always the sign of a good book as well when it's kind of it's aimed at a younger audience, but it's got a lot of value as an adult as well. Um, another one I really love is the Old Kingdom series by Garth Nix, which, again, is is young. adult. I think it's aimed at sort of 10 to 13 year olds, perhaps. But even as an adult, it's it's got this wonderful sense of horror and folklore and history to it that I loved as a kid. But I still love reading them as an adult. And obviously now you're expression of your love of nature takes the form of of illustration was was that something that was around the house as you grew up or was it a very sort of creative space yeah it, no that definitely was um my mum is as well as being a, a gardener by trade she's a um, a pastel artist so she does these beautiful portraits and uh, when i was young she was very encouraging of getting into art I think she uh, she hoped that I would take a proper trade, as she would say it, um, and that I wouldn't exactly go into working as an artist. But uh, but she was always whenever we went out, we used to go out on these walks on the forest and we'd always take a sketchbook each and then we'd sit and we'd be drawing. Um, even on rainy days, she'd get out the art uh, supplies. She's still got collections of my artwork back to when I was still sticking my hands in paint and smearing it on the paper. Um, but it was it was definitely a very artistic an artistic environment to grow up in. My my grandparents as well. Um, one of them is a watercolor artist and he paints these beautiful landscapes. And so I remember when I was a child, I used to take my sketchbooks and he'd have a look at them and and very seriously tell me about you know the 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 way that I'd expressed this little area or how I was very good at texture or you know he he treated it as though I was an adult, which as a as a child I really appreciated. And as you say, if, if you, you, you know, your mother's dealing mainly in, in pastels and your grandfather's dealing in watercolours, you're seeing a lot of different methods and materials uh, being used as well. Was that something that intrigued you early on, the different effects you could get with different products? It uh, it did to an extent until I realised that I was really bad when it came to painting. <laughs> um, I, I was quite good with uh, pen and ink, but when it came to painting and having to mix the colours and... Not being able to be precise, because um, a lot of my artwork is is very it's very graphical and very um, exact. And painting was a little too haphazard for me. I really struggled with the fact that you just didn't have that control over it. Um, so when I uh, when I started developing my artwork, I definitely went a more digital route because I found for me being able to control 
uh, the lines that I was creating, it, it was just a lot more a lot more applicable to the style of work that I wanted to do. And then it became a bit of a career thing. Um, I ended up working in the comic book industry and then from that went on to working greetings cards. And the fashion at the moment is for digital artwork. And so it just it became what I was doing uh, for work anyway. And I've just I've just stuck with that. I think it's it's become a, a convenient way to produce work quite quickly. Uh, without worrying about smudging ink or it's, it's also a space thing to be honest because when you've got a clearer desk to make space for your papers and your inks and then you're knocking things over or your cats are coming in and stepping all over it you know it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot easier when uh, when it's all on a computer yeah as you say particularly once you're moving into the more commercial aspects of illustration it is a lot about deadlines and just being able to deliver the work efficiently and obviously doing that digitally is going to be the the safest way you're not going to sort of lose the or it's not as fragile as the sort of the physical work exactly and i think obviously you do surrender the you know you give up the feeling of physically creating something with your hands like whenever i have done something with traditional media it's always been really nice to hold it afterwards and to be like oh this is this is something i made and with digital work, you don't necessarily get that until it's been printed and turned into a product. But also when it comes to a commercial to a commercial gig, it's so frequent that people will come back and ask for edits and changes that that after a while, it just became very clear that actually doing it digitally where you can just make those tweaks very quickly and easily, it just becomes a lot more practical. And I think that's that's an unfortunate uh, choice that you have to make between the two. I, I do know a number of artists who work digitally or who are traditionally even who do very well commercially but i just think i'd get so frustrated with all the changes that need to be made that uh it's it's easier for me just to uh to do everything digitally and i've become quite good at making it look as though it's been drawn by a pen but it's all been done on the computer i think as, as digital started to come into the comic book industry one of the sort of barriers that people perceived was the the fact that you'd lose the, the chance to sell uh, original art. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I know friends who are comic book illustrators and they, they said it was sort of uh, this quick realisation that all the gains you're making in terms of time <laughs> balance out against this one potential sale you could make, maybe. Yes. <laughs> As opposed to, I can definitely <laughs> deliver this job on time and get another job. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, It's. I think it's nice to... Because I, I have done a couple of projects where I've done things traditionally and it's nice at the end to hold on to a stack of papers and say oh I did all of this it's wonderful and like you say there's there's always the value that it's it's something you can share with the fans afterwards but um but yeah the value of just being able to make those changes quickly is is actually a it's, it's got more, much more benefit and are you still doing uh, a lot of commercial in terms of like working on projects for other people because it seemed like the, the majority of the output now is uh, your own work and merchandise that you're producing and distributing yourself yes um i've been i think i've been put in a very lucky position where i am i'm able to pick and choose the projects that i take um like i said i, I used to work in the uh, in comics and then greetings cards and I found that during that period, I I just stopped drawing for myself because I was working, you know, 8.30 in the morning until 7.30 or onwards at night on these projects. And then I get to the end of it and I think I just don't want to draw anything anymore because I've been doing this all day. 
And uh, and again, it's it's a balance that you have to decide on. I think when you become a commercial artist, that you may not have the freedom or the time or the energy to be able to creating to create your own art again. And and I know quite a lot of artists that actually balance it quite well, or they've been able to say, well, I don't mind what I'm drawing so long as I'm drawing, and they're they're happy to make that sacrifice. Um, but I I stuck it out for about six seven years, I think, and then it got to a point where I just realised that. I was getting more pleasure out of the idea of creating my own work than uh, creating someone else's and also developing my own style because you're always going to have to make uh, stylistic sacrifices, I suppose, to to draw what the client wants you to. Um, and I found myself in a position where I was I was able to just say that I wanted to create my own work. Um, so I do a lot of work for um t-shirt designs and um, illustrated books. I do a lot of work with the tabletop gaming um, community as well. And and it's turned out to be just as lucrative, I think, as working for clients. And it gives me a lot more pleasure, I think. But it also means that sometimes when, you know, someone like Liminal sort of come up and say, you know, we really like this thing that you produce. Could you produce another one for us? It means that because I have, I feel like I've established myself so much with the kind of work that I do and the style that I do that people can now approach me saying, well, we know what you do personally. This is what we like and this is what we want as well. And that's really nice to actually now be commissioned and um, and asked to do projects that are more aligned with the kind of thing that I want to be doing. Yeah, it's like you're being commissioned for you rather than what for you what, what you can do in terms of like your adaptability. Yeah, which is great. What, uh, what sort of comics projects were you working on? In, when, in your time in the industry? Uh, so I started off, um, again, and I will always preface this with, I was incredibly lucky um, with the breaks that I got in that when I graduated from university, I had quite a few friends who were working in the industry. And one of them was approached by Channel 4 um, for a project that she didn't have time for. But she, she sort of said to them, you know, I, I know a number of artists who are very flexible with their style and they can kind of mimic what I can do. So they will be, you know, they're happy to take up this project instead. And I ended up working on a project called The Thrill Electric, which was a it was an online comic. Uh, they called it a motion comic because every every episode or every chapter that was brought out had a section of animation in it that was done by a company called Little Loud. Um, and it was really interesting. It was um, it was a educational comic about the history of the telegram in Manchester. And we got to go up to Manchester to do this research trip. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and then from that, I ended up working with a number of uh, French and Italian publishers doing the um, doing the annuals that come out every year, like the My Little Pony annuals or the Winx Club. So it was very, it was very, very stylized and very much a case of they were saying, you know, we want you to replicate this artist's style or we want you to make it look like this cartoon, uh, which was it was perfectly valid. I, I really enjoyed it. It was nice to kind of play around with other styles that I wouldn't necessarily have done myself. But it was definitely a case of I wasn't really given the chance to develop what I wanted to do. And that came later, which so I'm very I'm very appreciative to now be in a position where I can actually create work with what I want to be drawing. Um, but at the same time, it was it was a wonderful break. Uh, it was a lot of fun as well. And it's quite exciting to say oh, there are books out there with with my name on that have done something really outrageous and very different. <laughs> well, particularly 
you know, My Little Pony has such uh, fanatical uh, following, doesn't it? Like, yes. you know, your work is immortal now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's my name isn't credited on any of them because they, I mean, some of them have them in like a little list at the back of here are the illustrators, the words on it. But most of the time they're not credited and no one would know it's you. But it's quite nice. to. I, I still actually have a, a number of them on my bookshelf because I, I like to keep everything that I've had published, even if it's just sort of magazines. Um, so I, I have a little uh, gallery of shame of all of my uh, children's <laughs> annuals that I've done. But, but it's, it's quite fun to be able to say, oh, yeah, I did that. W- were you a fan of My Little Pony as a child at all? <laughs> I think that I was, actually. Because kind of... I, I don't remember really watching the series, but I do remember getting one of the play sets like when I was four or five for Christmas or something. So I must have been at some point. Because, you know, again, it's nature and fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> maybe, maybe you put it aside too early. <laughs> that, that is true. Although I do remember, I think when I was a child, the ones that I remember being really into were uh, the animals of Farthingwood. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Watership Down and all of the ones that kind of, they were still nature and they were still fantasy, but they had a, a bit of a darker edge. I think even as a child, that was definitely a thing. Sylvanian families probably didn't appeal because they were wearing bow ties and waistcoats. Would I be right in thinking? <laughs> oh, that was far too cutesy. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> you're, like, no, you're like, I live in Hampshire. I know these badgers don't dress like this. They don't dress. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There was a, a wonderful documentary I saw about My Little Pony. Um, a few months back and the woman who's basically running the comics and essentially you know the, the showrunner for the whole project at the moment uh, was obsessed as a child and at 10 years old wrote to the company with like uh 10 designs they said that they, she said they could use for free because she was just <laughs> obsessed with becoming with creating my little ponies and i love the fact that She's grown up and that's exactly what she's doing. <laughs> she's she's, yeah. she's absolutely living her dream. I think that's really admirable when uh, when someone at that age knows exactly what they want to do. And I, I think I remember when I was maybe about the same age, so about 10 or so, I wrote to Brian Jacks and I think I actually drew a character and said, this is this character and you know, I'd love to see him in one of the books. And I think he does actually turn up. Uh, as like a mentioned in name in passing, but he was very good with uh, with that's responding to a lot of his fan club. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like when you are that age, that's the most magical thing that you can imagine happening, isn't it? like yeah. being incorporated into this world that you're in love with. Yeah, as, and even if it's just a a passing mention, like I think this one literally is just a one of the characters calls out a number of names to a number of characters, and I'm like, oh, that's the name of the one I came up with. <laughs> but um, but yeah, he was he was very reactive with his fan club, and and I think that's so important as well for creators, especially when you're writing for young adults, because they respond so well to that, and it instills, as it did with me, a sort of a lifelong appreciation of what they were creating and, uh, and a, a, a very distinct fondness of that media because you feel like you've had a personal connection to it as you say the work you do now a lot of it is not a lot of it but there's a there's a strand related to the role-playing community and role-playing games some beautiful got the journals and the handbooks really sort of beautifully designed and and, and put together and i think it's a great example of your sort of love of the the subject that you're dealing with being infused into the the work itself mm definitely well i've been i've been playing in tabletop games for 
about 10 years now, I think. And it's been it's been really wonderful to see it improving in or increasing in popularity, um, helped along by, I think, the fact that it was it was shown in Stranger Things. Uh, critical roles become such a thing there are i mean there's a big focus on dungeons dragons being the famous one i think the one that everyone knows but there are so many wonderful systems out there that are different uh, that focus on different areas that getting to explore those and getting to um yeah, getting to discover the the different mechanics and the different genres is is a lot of fun and it's been really nice in many ways because it's had this increase in popularity that it's it's really nice to be able to produce products for all of not just the older players, people who've been doing it for years, but for the younger ones who are experiencing it for the first time, because there's definitely a there's definitely a demand for custom notebooks or one of the things I created is the character journals, which have all of the standard sheets that they um, that a lot of the systems produce, but done in a more personalized way. And it's been really nice to be able to to produce these things and know that it's being able to contribute to people's enjoyment of what is for a lot of people a, a new form of, of gaming. I think Kickstarter has been invaluable to the comics industry and allowing people to sort of bring uh, projects to life that you know wouldn't necessarily have obvious appeal to a mainstream publisher and it sort of falls between the cracks of different companies uh, specializations and i think similarly uh, it's been incredible for board games and uh, tabletop role-playing games just allowing people to have you know, this idea for a, a system or a quirk or a, a subject that hasn't been explored before. And, you know, you can sort of, you know, the proof of concept is uh, the fact that you can get the funding to then make it. So uh, it's really sort of opened up the opportunities. And similarly, that opens up the market then for people like yourself to create sort of ancillary products that allow then the games to, to grow and become even uh, richer for people, I think. Yeah, and it's it's really wonderful um, to see people engaging with the community in that way, where they're not just saying, oh, well, I, I play this system, where they're saying, oh, well, I've, I've made an adjustment. Uh, like I recently um, played one called Blue Rose, which I think was kickstarted, and it was based on the Dragon Age role-playing system, which obviously was originally based on the... Dungeons and Dragons. So it's it's really nice to kind of see these new systems evolving and being created and being put out there by fans. And it's helped with uh, with websites such as the DMs Guild, where people can upload content. And you, some of them are some of them are charged, some of them are pay what you want. But it's really nice to see people being able to put out their ideas and actually getting that feedback and, and developing things. And I've seen some great systems on uh, on Kickstarter. Uh, there was a wonderful one recently, which was based on uh, Magical Girl anime. And uh, and it's all about, you know, having transformation sequences. And it's based in high school as well. So you have um, the whole thing is based around periods of school. So it's like, well, this is this period. This is the lesson that we're learning. Here are your classmates. What do you do in that period? And that's something that, you know, back when tabletop gaming was first being developed, I think everyone was thinking on such a grand scope of we want these these rolling fantastical dramas that no one would have thought to have made something that's that niche and that localized. 
but I really love that people are now starting to create those and put them out into the world because it just it shows a lot of creativity and it's it's bringing people in from so many different areas it's wonderful yeah it's a sort of virtuous circle almost isn't it the more interesting games that are developed the more different people are brought into the the hobby who have new fresh ideas that spin out of that and it becomes this wonderful thing that rolls on and develops exactly and you can definitely tell that when people are creating new systems that they have different areas of interest Uh, so again to go back to dungeons and dragons because it's the most popular one it's very much a warfare system it is focused mostly most of the mechanics are based on battles but you get a lot of players nowadays who are very interested in the actual role-playing side of it in the building of friendships and relationships not just within the teams that you're playing with but with the npcs with the world but D doesn't really allow for that so much because it's never been designed for it so you're starting to get systems that are appearing where people have um whole systems that are built around building relationships or um yeah focusing on not just the relationships within the party but with npcs and and that's really nice to see actually and it's it's great to kind of take those mechanics and you can adjust them for any kind of system but it's it's really nice to see people actually acknowledging where there are gaps in some things and then building a whole new product around it i think it's also just the the spirit of the game expanding as well isn't it obviously there's a a big sort of the underlying relationship between role-playing games and improvisation in terms of performance and i do think there's a a a newer crop of sort of dms and gms out there that are are more sort of like yes and rather than oh you can't do that because you know the mechanic doesn't exist rather than sort of going yeah let's try that and see where it sort of takes us exactly yeah there's there's a wonderful one uh, which i quite enjoy called welcome to the apocalypse which is, um, with with D&D, it's very much, you have to roll over a certain number or you fail at whatever you're trying to do. But with this one, it's always a case of you roll 2d6, and if you get over a certain number, it's a full success. If you get under that number, it's only a partial success. So you get to choose which part goes wrong. And I feel <laughs> like that's much more encouraging to get people to try doing things, because there's no way of failing you will always get some sort of success, but there is just an element of, oh, that didn't quite go to plan. And that's always really nice as well, seeing people actually encouraging, um, attempting things rather than thinking, oh, I know I can't make that high roll, so I'm just not going to do it. Folk Magic and Healing was your first book for Liminal Eleven. And I understand the sort of, you know, it's sort of tangentially, the, the sort of origins of, uh, of your interest there have sort of emerged from uh, RPGs. Yes, it was originally only going to be a pocketbook um, for gamers. Um, Like I've mentioned before, I've always had this interest in um, using plants as medicine and and in, I suppose, what you'd call more kind of druidic practices. And I heard throughout writing various projects or sort of reading books and, and getting into the subject, I've gathered this whole host of information in what plants could be used in various medicines and the histories of plants. And uh, and I wanted to create, I was thinking, oh, it'll be eight pages, 10 pages maybe, <laughs> and it'll just be a little pocketbook for people who want to play, say, a healer or a druid, and they want to be able to put some sort of real life knowledge in it to feel like they know a bit more about the subject. And, uh, and the more that I 
more I thought this is definitely going to be a thing, I'll do some proper research into it. I just kept finding more and more and more. And I was thinking, <laughs> I, I don't want to cut out any of this because this is all really interesting to me. And, uh, and before I knew it, it was 120 pages long. And I thought, oh, this is this is a lot bigger than I meant it to be. Um, and it, it was really nice to actually see it come into a proper book. But uh, I think that's the way of a lot of projects is, uh, is as creators, we always have an idea and think, oh, this will be small. This will be nice and controlled. And before you know it, it's it's out of control. Um, I mean, it's... As you mentioned, sort of this one with Liminal. So they, they picked it up. They really liked it. And they said, we want to publish as a, you know, as a fully published book. Um, and then they came to me a year later and they said, actually, we would like you to do a follow up, which is uh, Botanical Curses and Poisons, which will be out later this year. And having written that first one, which was meant to be eight pages long, turns into 120. I was in there thinking I, I could do that again. Yeah. I mean, there's there's some really interesting poisonous plants out there and there's some, you know, there are a lot of mentions of sort of black magic and sorcery that I couldn't put in the first one because it didn't really fit the theme. And I think that one's ended up at about 280 pages. So it's <laughs> it's double again. It's very easy to get carried away. And I, I look back now at Yes, I, I look back now at the first one and I just think, oh, I could have made these sections a lot longer. It was, you know, each section's about one paragraph. And then I look at the second one that I brought out and some of the sections about three, four pages long. And I'm thinking, I got a little carried away with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love uh, folk magic and healing. I, you know, obviously, ostensibly, the, the, the sort of... Yeah, idea of it is to examine the medicinal uses of, of various plants in traditional medicine. But um, obviously you, you interweave it with uh, such sort of fascinating, you know, mythological ideas and, and, and folklorish ideas, which are, for me, um, the most interesting ones, where it's this sort of like very sort of localised, specialised things and how different. I think one of my favourite entries is uh, on basil where you, you said in certain traditions it's seen as like the purest of the plants like i think you say that like people say the soul of a good person smells like basil but then in france you have this whole thing where it seems the devil's plant and you have to curse as you sow it so much so that there's a phrase in french uh sowing the basil which is basically just going on a big swearing run <laughs> basically yes and i i love that it's i love how certain plants have become associated with different things in different areas and and some of it can some of it can be narrowed down to there was probably just one person who really hated this one plant and told everyone <laughs> about it and the story spread but then a lot of it also dates back to uh, to very very early botanical uh, collections which um, a lot of them were written in one language and then translated into another, then another. And through mistranslations or through missing names or perhaps the illustrations weren't particularly clear, they've become crossed over with other plants as well. So you start seeing some plants that are given the same magical or folklore attributes as other plants. And it's it's actually very interesting in the research to then start trying to detangle them as well. Um, there was a, there's a, a section in the uh, botanical curses and poisons which was really interesting to find out about, which was um, looking at the tomato plant, where it came over to Europe um, originally from South America, and it was around the time when a lot of these old herbals were being retranslated. 
And there was a, there was one from the Middle East, which was um, a much older book. And I'm saying this off the top of my head. I can't remember the names to save my life. But uh, but it had in it this one plant, which no one knew exactly what the name of it was because it was in Greek. Um, I think it was originally a Middle Eastern book that was then translated to Greek, but it had been mistranslated. And all they could work out was half of the word, which translated to the word wolf. And no one knew what the second part was, <laughs> but it had some sort of a translation, um, some sort of an illustration. And they'd basically been looking at all the plants that they knew of and thinking, which one is this plant? And it's thought that it was a mandrake eventually. Um, but, you know, it was saying this is what the plant looks like. It's poisonous. It's terrible. It's going to kill you. And then traders from South America brought over this tomato and people looked at the tomato and they said, it looks like this. This this must be the wolf. You know, the wolf. They were calling it a wolf peach at this point. <laughs> and um, and so you suddenly had this new plant that had been brought over from a different country and no one really knew it. No one really trusted it. No one really liked it. And then suddenly there were these stories of, oh, it's called the wolf peach. Why is it called the wolf peach? Well, it must turn you into a werewolf. <laughs> oh, yes, I heard that one person. They, they ate one and they turned into a werewolf. And so suddenly this thing was surrounded by all of this superstition and and everyone, they wouldn't touch it. And and it's fascinating to see how these stories can kind of get out of control. And, and I think there was um, – it probably wasn't helped by the fact that a lot of uh, nobility at that time were using le- – uh, pewter plates to eat their food and because the tomato was slightly acidic when they would cut the tomatoes on the plates it would leach lead from the plates and then uh, people would eat it and then they'd die of lead poisoning so a lot of people again believe that the tomato was then toxic it was poisonous it was going to kill you and and it's amazing how these stories can just get completely out of control whether they're right or not it just kind of brings up these stories that even now they can linger and and you kind of get these strange little nicknames for plants that still kind of get repeated and I just find that really fascinating. It's really telling of our history as a people. And I love that. Well, and as you say, you get things like the thing with the smart plant where, you know, the acid and the, the lead causes something. So that's seen as the, the root. And similarly in uh, Folk Magic and Healing, you tell that wonderful story about Four Thieves Vinegar, where people are applying this sort of stinky mess to their bodies to pre- stop getting the plague. And it kind of works because it, like, not that they know this, but it's warding off fleas which are carrying the plague. So it's this interesting thing, isn't it, where the result is not necessarily directly from the thing that they're doing, but uh, it's caused by the action they're taking. Exactly. And I find that really interesting where you get, especially in a lot of very early cases, people either didn't know or didn't understand the science behind it. But there was still a belief of that this works for some reason. One of them um, was the use of silver in um, in medicine, where either plants would be soaked in water in silver bowls, or if you it was called the water of the plant, and it would usually be used to sort of soak bandages or to clean injuries. And they would place the plant in it, and then it would either be done in a silver bowl, or they'd throw a silver coin into it. And it was believed that the silver had magical properties and that it would you know, make it stronger and more potent. But what it is is that silver has uh, antibacterial properties and that it was still doing the job, but they just didn't understand necessarily that it was a scientific thing instead of a magical thing. And so you get a lot of things like that that are given magical attributes. And again, sort of stories come up around them. And, and I just I really love those. 
and obviously botanical curses and poisons coming later in the year. You, the sort of focus of your research obviously is skewed by the fact that you're looking at poisons rather than medicines, uh, but also the sort of scope of what you're looking at in terms of the, the global mythology you're drawing on is slightly different as well. Yeah, that's that's a really great one, um, because it's it's not just looking at poisonous plants, but it's also ones that have been attributed to black magic or um, or darker sorceries, because I, I just love that kind of slightly ghastly, slightly gruesome side to things. I, I've always had an interest in ghost stories, um, but it's interesting to me because with um, with folk magic and healing, it was very much written to be about. Um, plants in the British Isles because that's what I know and I'm, I'm always more comfortable writing about things that I know quite well but a lot of poisonous plants come from hotter more tropical countries which meant that with the research in this one I was starting to look into African Australian South American mythologies which was a bit of a challenge in itself I think because because it's not something I'm familiar with and you've got to be very careful obviously not to get things wrong or to make sure that you know what you're talking about before you're actually writing it down. And that was that was fun in itself, I think, of just kind of double and triple checking all the sources, making sure that uh, that they're all correct. But also learning a lot more about uh, foreign mythologies that I'm not particularly familiar with. I think it'll be an interesting contrast for, for readers as well. I'm, I'm looking forward to it because uh, folk magic and healing, let's say, the the, the sort of British European focus of it is one thing, but then this will be a sort of expansive thing to, to read and enjoy as well. So, yeah, really looking forward to it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it coming out. Um, it's it's quite an exciting one. It's because it is so different. You know, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be well received. But everyone that I've mentioned it to have all sort of, again, with that slightly kind of interest in the gruesome, have all said, oh, that sounds wonderful. So <laughs> I think everyone likes something slightly morbid like that. We'll let you go, Fez. Before we do, uh, could you just let us know your website where you sell a, an array of, of different kinds of merchandise, clothing and tote bags uh, and the RPG-related stuff? Uh, it's crowandcrown.store. Yes, it's it's got a, a good mix of uh, botanical things on there and, and tabletop stuff. It's uh, it's only it's only been put up recently, but I'm I'm really excited to uh, yeah, to start sort of selling that kind of thing. Well, it's a wonderful selection. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Thanks again to Fez for talking to us, and thank you for listening. Just a reminder that you can pick up a copy of Folk Magic and Healing at liminal11.com and Fez's other work at crowandcrown.store. See you next month. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.